0: we're just talking about brain health or, you know, resisting Alzheimer's at the individual behavioral level. Like that's, that's fine, but there are broader forces, broader systems that affect brain health.
1: Hi there. This is Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. At MindRamp, we're passionate about redefining human longevity This is part two of an extended conversation I had with Daniel R. George about his new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, that Danny co-authored with Peter Whitehouse. Peter and Danny also collaborated on an earlier book called The Myth of Alzheimer's, What You Aren't Being Told About Today's Most Dreaded Diagnosis. Both books have been very influential in my thinking about brain health and dementia. Danny George is an Associate Professor of Humanities and Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. He earned his Ph.D. and his Master's of Science in Medical Anthropology from Oxford University in 2010. He has over 130 professional peer-reviewed publications, and his research on intergenerational issues in dementia care has been recognized by the global advocacy group Alzheimer's Disease International. You Love inventing terms. Is that you or Peter or both of you? Both love new terms.
0: Oh yeah, Peter. Peter more than me, but yeah, I'm I'm a lover too.
1: <laughs> echo psychosocial factors was was one of the terms, and the echo part is is new of that. Uh, talk about you know why that's important.
0: Yeah, that, that I'll credit Peter. That's his neologism. But it's a really interesting lens. So, you know, people will be more familiar with psychosocial as a sort of biopsychosocial as a sort of construct. Think about illness or wellness at the biological level, but also at social and psychological levels. But what Peter suggested is there's another concentric circle even broader than that, which is the health of our um, environment and the actual ecological systems that we live in. And, you know, we have a chapter on climate change and the brain in the book. And, One thing that really brought this model home for me was in 2017, there were really vicious storms in Texas that people might remember with massive flooding. And there was this Mm -hmm. famous picture of um, seniors living in a nursing home who were like neck deep in water. And the National Guard hadn't, um, wasn't able to reach them for like a day or two. So they were sitting in this brackish water from the storm that was exacerbated by, you know, a warmer climate and everything. And so when we think about, um, you know, who's most susceptible to to climate change, it's the vulnerable in, in the culture. It's the elderly, it's kids. And so, you know, as as you're saying, like, if we're just talking about brain health or, you know, resisting Alzheimer's at the individual behavioral level. Like, that's, that's fine, but there are broader forces, broader systems that affect brain health. And so, you know, we we do ourselves a disservice if we reduce things to sort of individual behavioral risk assessments, because there are broader systemic forces, both politically, economically, but also environmentally that are going to affect our aging brains, that are going to affect the Vulnerability of aging people uh, as the, the climate shifts. And so uh, the, the biggest, broadest, most honest model of brain health, uh, thanks, thanks to Peter, is probably an eco psychosocial one that builds from the individual outwards, family, society, political economy, and the environment and ecology.
1: As you talk about solutions to this, it becomes a fairly radical political activism approach that needs to be taken you and Peter are of different generations. I share, I'm in the boomer generation with Peter. Do you classify yourself as a millennial if we're putting labels on it? Is that's right, it? yeah. Uh, and one of the points that you make in the book is that just generational differences, you have experienced different things in the formative years of your life hmm. and therefore have very different frameworks about um, how life should work.
0: Yeah, yeah no, that's a really good framing, actually. I, I, I mean... I was born in 1982. I'm what they call a geriatric millennial, which is a funny kind of phrase, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, that. Yeah. Yeah. They're making us geriatric now. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So basically neoliberalism, this era that launched in the seventies is all I've ever known. It's all my generation has ever known, but right. the promise of neoliberalism, liberating markets, responsibilizing individuals within markets has not really worked for us so well. So So neoliberalism is effectively things like privatizing services that used to be provided by the government and uh, deregulating markets, attacking unions, things of that nature. Um, And so like the deregulation side of it, for instance, in the 90s, we deregulated the housing industry, right? Mm -hmm and the the banking industry we repealed Glass-Steagall and you know all of those things these promises of the neoliberal era came home to roost for my generation when we were sort of coming out of college into the working world with the great recession of course we had the foreclosure crisis and we had to bail out the banks with massive wealth. And we didn't bail out the people who had houses that they lost, of course. And so the social contract of neoliberalism has not worked for millennials. A lot of us are downwardly mobile. A lot of us have debt because we've, again, had Wall Street underwrite massive debt for, for housing, for educations. So we've lived in this marketized world. In the book, we talk about, um, you know, it's the water that we swim in neoliberalism. And unfortunately, you know, it just hasn't worked. And I think what, what we saw last decade, with something like Occupy Wall Street, which is a framing device we use in the book, is just my, you know, my generation sort of saying, this doesn't quite feel right. You know, the the promise of living in this, uh, in in America right now is not working for the the great mass of people. Uh, And so there is, I think, a generational difference in how we, um, how Peter and I especially approach this book and you know, we had some very, I'll be honest, we had some very challenging conversations as I tried to sort of argue for a focus on neoliberalism and a more political economic lens. I think, um, you know, it, there was a, there was very good creative disagreement about that at first, but we we ultimately worked towards a, a good understanding about it, I think.
1: Well, what were the differences? What did the differences represent, you think, generational differences beyond just your individual, you know, you, Danny, you and Peter?
0: Yeah, I, I do think so because I it mirrored the challenging conversation I had with my parents. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. a, a big uh, Bernie Sanders supporter um, a few years right. ago, and and my parents
1: argue, I mean, he's great, but he he won't win, so that you're you're wasting your vote.
0: Yeah, that that, and I think you know, for boomers, socialism has a particular connotation. You guys lived through the Red Scare; you probably still did the under the desk stuff. You know, with the bomb mm-hmm. bomb raids, and I did for,
1: indeed. Yeah.
0: And, uh, you know, that that creates a certain milieu in which socialism, you know, has a different valence to it. And for my generation, I think capitalism has that negative valence to it because we've seen, as mentioned, life expectancy falling and massive generational loss of wealth for millennials. And it's difficult to buy a house and, you know. Uh, the, the promise of capitalism has not maybe worked less well for our generation than it has for boomers. You know, they, boomers came of age in that mid-20th century period we were talking about, where there's still heavy state subsidization for higher education, for instance, right? There there was massive state investment because of the, the conflict with Russia um, or the USSR in state universities and infrastructure for higher education and keeping prices low. And we had Pell grants for people and things of that nature. It wasn't a market commodity like it has been for millennials. And so I think... There's just a different texture in the way boomers grew up. If you guys worked hard, kept your nose down, you know, grinded it out, there were systems in place to sort of further your advancement. Whereas for millennials, I think it's been much more precarious and tenuous uh, advancing into adulthood.
1: This is the MindRamp Podcast. I'm Michael Patterson, and I'm talking with Daniel R. George, co-author of American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. If you're enjoying this conversation, you will also want to listen to our podcast with Danny's co-author, Peter Whitehouse. Let's shift more now into what do we do about it. We recognize that Things are screwed up, and we're, we are an unhealthy society, and unless we make it an, a healthier society, we're just kicking the can down the road, and our, each generation is going to suffer the same kind of conditions and, and dementia. So what do we do?
0: Yeah, and just to build on our prior conversation, I think another market that um, has emerged in recent decades that's problematic is the brain fitness marketplace that also responsibilizes individuals in the way you're describing. Uh, the seat of, of responsibility becomes the, the individual person who consumes brain games or nutraceuticals or supplements or, you know, engages in these rituals of self-care and finds salvation through that sort of consumption. And that's a very unhealthy way to think about brain health. I um, would just sort of connect that to what we were just talking about is yet another market that we've been uh, exposed to. But yeah, so on, on the more affirming side of that, though, what do we do? And there's actually, um, you know, the Lancet Commission on, uh, on Dementia Prevention a few years ago mm. uh, has aggregated all of the data on what appears to be preventative for brain health. And it's the things that you would expect, right? It's minimizing diabetes and making sure people treat hypertension, not smoking, reducing air pollution, but also things like providing hearing aids to people. which is uh, an emergent uh, risk factor that we've sort of neglected. But, you know, in a market-based healthcare system, it's going to be harder for some people to access that resource. Um,
1: Dental care, having insurance for dental care as part of Medicare.
0: Absolutely. So the, the research is simultaneously showing that a lot of risk for dementia is amenable to modification or change. But the question is, to what extent are people able to manifest that in their lives uh, because of the structures that we have? And so there, there was a really good article in Lancet a few weeks ago by our friend Carol Brain, who talks about shifting from sort of high risk individual prevention paradigms to more whole population prevention That means things like investing in walking routes and cycling routes and uh, even subsidizing bicycling equipment for people, Uh, working with the food industry to improve the traditional content of food and uh, subsidizing higher education in the ways that we've, we've discussed, um, you know, attacking the lead crisis problem head on, replacing that old aging infrastructure, which the Biden administration, to their credit, did talk about as part of build back better, but it's, it's not. Apparently going to happen, unfortunately. Developing age-friendly towns is another part of this, dementia-friendly communities.
1: Describe what a, a an age-friendly town would be or a dementia-friendly town. What would that what does that mean?
0: Yeah, great question. That that's a construct that sort of emerged in the last decade or so, I think. And it, it's mm-hmm. been driven by the UN, which has led what they call an age-friendly movement, and mm-hmm. dementia-friendly America, which focuses more on dementia-friendly mm-hmm. communities. Age friendly communities are more encompassing of people of all ages. It's just trying to figure out how we can collectively enhance quality of life and material security for people in towns. The dementia-friendly movement is a bit more focused on how do we help businesses and transport and different domains of the local economy adapt to a greater aging cohort of people who are going to be patronizing businesses or, um, you know, how do we train people to be dementia supporters who can recognize memory loss or memory frailty and support people. But, you know, what it means to me is, is really investing in collective things again and getting back to that social contract that we had in the mid 20th century, where we are identifying areas of shared material benefit and properly investing and using redistributive taxation to fund those things. And then also focusing on the care side for people who are having to live in age segregated institutions you know, making sure that they have access to the arts and to intergenerational interactions and to storytelling and all of the things that we know are enriching of quality of life and sense of purpose. That that to me is more what we should be talking about when we talk about dementia-friendly
1: communities. In my discussion with Peter, I read a couple of quotes that I said, Boy, these are depressing quotes. Let me read them to you. And then then you need to cheer me up. And he said, Oh Danny wrote those. So. <laughs> So, Probably. So let me read one of these depressing, well, I don't know if it's depressing, but it's, it's um, well, you do say, I do think we are headed towards some form of more dramatic revolution, because I don't believe our political systems can respond quickly enough to the ex- accelerating pace of climate heating. So this is, we're talking specifically about climate change, and, and you mentioned revolution. Do you think a revolution is required? And if so, what kind of revolution would that be? So
0: that quote believe it or not ironically is is actually from Peter. Peter is much more <laughs> of a what I, what okay. I would call a baby doomer uh, than I am on the environment. I okay. I, uh, I would not use that apocalyptic language as much as Peter would, but um yeah, clearly we're heading into challenging times and the climate is going to exacerbate existing problems just like covid has done, right. you know, right. at the societal level. So revolution, that is a such a loaded word and you know, I almost yeah. was dismayed when Bernie Sanders embraced the language of revolution mm-hmm. because again, like to go back to like talking to my parents about it, my mom had a real hard time. Like uh, boomers yeah. don't want revolutions. Like, you know, if people are stable in their lives, you don't want a revolution. Um, right. So I, I would have much preferred the Sanders campaign to talk about connecting to the new deal and, you know, that the sort of ethos of that era and just trying to inscribe that again on, on our culture. It's a new in Western European countries still. Mm-hmm so we have economic political economic systems that are good at sustaining themselves, right. That's what they spe- specialize at. Mm. And so revolutions, um, you know, they'll do the basic minimum to, to stave off revolutions, just like with COVID we had, um, you know, these, these payments from the government, uh, which were very minimal, like less than $2,000, but it, it staved off, uh, exacerbating circumstances in people's lives just enough to keep things moving along. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. But, you know, le- as I said, life expectancy is dropping. I, one thing I study at Penn State are deaths of despair. Okay. These are specifically deaths from suicide, alcoholism, and drug overdose. And we're seeing over 200,000 a year of these types mm-hmm. of deaths. And, contributing to falling life expectancy and you know all three of those ways of dying re- reflect people's numbness seeking numbness and escape from the pain of their lives and so you know unfortunately the response to the pain in people's lives is going into these escapes and substances but if that's directed in a different way it could go somewhere else that cultural energy and i think you saw that with with trump and Sanders to some extent to sort of attempt to channel the Uh, the the agitation, the disenchantment people felt in their lives in a political direction that could still happen. I don't think it will because the system so powerfully um, homogenizes things, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, it is a possibility as things get worse and nothing is done at the federal level to improve people's life.
1: So To solve our American dementias, we need to take responsibility for our personal behaviors and recognize that this includes working for political and economic reforms that will protect our environment, clean up the air we breathe and the water we drink, provide equal access to education, health care, and to healthy food. The subtitle of American Dementia is Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. The way to heal individual cases of dementia is to heal the eco psychosocial malaise that infects our political and economic systems. All right, that's it for this podcast. You know, you'll be interested to listen to the third podcast with Danny George, which takes us into somewhat unexpected territory. We discuss the renewed scientific interest in the power of psychedelics. Researchers are documenting the mental health benefits of these non-addictive, consciousness-altering substances. And Danny and I speculate about the potential of psychedelics to alter our mindsets about aging and death, and also our connections to nature and the interconnectedness of all living things. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for caring about healthy brains and clear-thinking minds. Learn more about our work and research at www.mindramp.org. Okay, until next time, take care of yourself, take care of your family and your community, and take care of the planet that sustains us all.